Alright, we are uh, still in Revelation chapter 2. Still in Revelation chapter 2, working through the seven letters of the church. I was, I was again kind of hoping maybe that I would be able to get through more. But as I was working on the lesson, it just wasn't going to happen. So we are going to do two churches tonight, two more. Last week we talked about Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, Pergamum and Thyatira. And we're going to spend a good bit of time in, in Pergamum especially. Um, mainly because that's the one I worked on first. And I got to Thyatira and I didn't have as much time. <laughs> Although Thyatira has got uh, some good words for us as well. Good, a good message for us as well. And again, we're just uh, zooming in. Actually, I, I finally got my posters. I ordered these posters, and I'm just so happy with how they look. Um, the one back, uh, right above Mr. Raymond there is got the very detailed, it's very, very detailed. I was actually so happy when it came in, I was able to look at it. You can look really close at it, and the details are awesome. Uh, but this is up there in the top left. You can see it if you want to look at it later. Uh, but we're still at the beginning of that book, and we'll be kind of making our way through, and we'll zoom in to that poster as we're, as we're moving through. We're still in the, the letters. Honestly, what I'm finding as I study these closely is that um, there's different words and different um, specifics, um, but really they, they all, um, they really do it, they did a good job of, as they draw, drew this, because a lot of it is, a lot of the same, they're facing a lot of the same thing, same um, same problems, same temptations, this idea of tribulation uh, between compromising their faith um, and remaining faithful uh, to, to Jesus and to their calling. Um, and then this idea that if they do that, they will be rewarded in the new creation, which we'll look at a long time from now in chapter 21 and 22. Um, so uh, we're, looking at, we're looking at the seven churches of Revelation, we've kind of—I've shown you this map before. Um, this is Patmos. This is where John is, and then these are the seven churches. And we're just kind of making our way through them. We go to Ephesus. We talked about that last week, and then it goes to Smyrna. We talked about last week. Now we're moving on to Pergamum. Um, Pergamum kind of is like the, the main city of this area. It kind of serves as a little bit of a capital for uh, Asia Minor in this part of the Roman Empire. Um, it kind of serves as a, as a capital of the area, and that makes it a very important, um, a very important place. All of these have different, unique things. As a matter of fact, most Greek, most uh, Roman cities have something unique about themselves, um, and, and Pergamum kind of serves as the capital. Obviously, it's the first one um, if you're coming from Greece in that area. So um, that's where we're at this evening, or that's where we're starting at this evening is Pergamum. Uh, let's read Revelation 2, verse 20, or verse 12 through 17. This is the letter, or the message to Pergamum specifically. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name. And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my, wit- my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and engage in sexual immorality. But you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, then. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. But anyone who 
everyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, again, I, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the last part, mainly because we'll get into that later on. But um, once again, this this like image of um, a new name and, and hidden manna, uh, um, a, a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it, um, that is an image that's pulled from the end of the book of Revelation. So um, I want to just kind of start with Pergamum. When I preached through, when we preached on a few texts in Revelation over the Easter season, I talked about this a little bit. It was one of the most fascinating things about the background of Revelation that I have found. Um, and, and so we're going to start with a commendation. Remember, commendation as in um, commending them. You know, this is what you're doing good. Uh, the commendation for the Pergamum church, verse 13. Um, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name. And you did not deny your faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. Um, so again, we're at this reference to Satan a couple times here. Satan's throne, where Satan lives. Um, he's going to use this, John, John uses this image of Satan as, um, as being embodied, really, um, by the Roman Empire in a lot of ways. Actually, uh, in chapter 1, he or no, sorry, in, in one of the other churches, there's this reference to Satan is going to put you in prison, right? Um, and I think I've mentioned before, it's not that literally Satan is going to come and put them in prison, but Rome is, right? And so this idea of, of, of Satan being embodied in the, 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 the empire of Rome. Um, but I, I found this so fascinating. Uh, I showed this picture when I preached on it. But this is the Acropolis uh, of um, Pergamum. This is a, a, a reconstruction, a, a drawing that someone made um, based on what is there now. This is actually what's there right now. And the reason I show you this view is because it, it's looking up. So an Acropolis like in, 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 uh, in um, Athens and all these places, an Acropolis is, a, is an elevated area where there'll be lots of temples to different gods being worshipped there. Maybe even some um, political buildings um, where some, some political type stuff takes place. That's, that's generally what a propolis is. And usually the city itself is down here somewhere. You're looking up at the Acropolis. It may even be around it in a lot of ways. Um, but this is the Acropolis up here where all these temples are. And this is the recreation of it. So obviously this part over here is kind of this area. Um, and then over here is this. You can't see this. There's like an amphitheater right here. Um, the reason I think it's important for us to see this is because of the language that, that John is using. The throne of Zeus. This could mean a lot of things. Um, there's several theories, actually, about um, what the throne of Zeus could mean. My favorite theory, and again, we have to recognize that um, a lot of these are different opinions, different theories, is that this big, giant temple right here, it's a massive, massive temple to Zeus. There's nothing left of it. Actually, it's somewhere over here in this picture. You can't, I mean, there's nothing there at all now. Um, all we have is like the historical evidence of what was there. But it's this massive um, temple that really is kind of shaped like a seat. It's like a seat where, where they imagine Zeus, seat, Zeus sitting. Um, it's also a meeting place for the, um, the imperial, imperial cult, which I've talked a little bit about. The imperial cult is the worship of the emperor. Um, it's, it's a whole religion, basically, in, in uh, Rome, and a cult being specifically a, a subset of 
of the, the Roman religion, the Roman faith, I guess you could say, um, and is the idea of worshiping uh, the, the emperor and past emperors alongside other gods. It's a really, really important thing to know about when you read the book of Revelation. That is taking place a lot in Asia Minor. Um, actually, Pergamum becomes the central place. Like the, that's where the pilgrimages would take place for, uh, for the worship of the emperor. They would go here. Um, they're not sure exactly where it happened. Some believe it actually happened in the Temple of Zeus. Others believe, or others have talked about how there was a, there was a specific shrine built um, for the worship of the, um, the emperor. But I like the theory that when he says throne, Satan's throne, that this, this, this looks like a throne to me. That's really what it looks like. It's, it looks like a throne, like a place you would sit down and place your arms. Another theory is, is that there was um, also another god worshipped there, and now his, his name is um, escaping me. But it's a god. It's a god that's represented by a snake. Um, and then later on, we'll we'll see that that John does reference um, uh, Satan as a saint, as the, that ancient serpent, right? Um, that that we get from that image from the Garden of Eden. Um, and so there's other there's other theories. The idea is he's pulling these images and saying that. That Satan lives in Pergamum. Um, Satan's throne is in Pergamum. The place that he rules from is in Pergamum. Um, and so that's an important part. Uh, that's an important part of what we're thinking about. Um, the, the culture, the environment of Pergamum is one where, um, where human beings, men, um, are, are worshipped as gods, where um, false gods are worshipped. And, and the people who live there are pressured to not just um, not just kind of tolerate it, but to, to be brought into it, right? So that accommodate word that we talked about a couple weeks ago, accommodating it. And so finding ways to, to live um, at peace in this place where Jesus is not worshipped as Lord. Jesus is not worshipped as, as the king of the world, but rather um, Caesar is, a man who just happens to rule one small empire as we will learn. All right, so um, let's, let's talk about this commendation for the Pergamum Church. Um, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. The days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Um, we don't know anything about this person, Antipas, except that it seems like they were killed for their faithfulness to the way of Jesus and that it was an ordeal for the whole community. Um, obviously, it was difficult to remain faithful in the face of someone that they loved and knew and perhaps was even a leader in the church, um, we're not really sure, but is killed for their faith um, and remains faithful through that, the ordeal, the, the tribulation that they must have experienced during that time. That's the commendation. That's at the, the root of what they are being commended for. Um, there's another word I want, there's a word in here I want to highlight. Um, it's the word witness. Um, if you uh, got a um, monthly um, newsletter uh, I wrote about this in my, my, little, um, my little post in there about witness because we're talking about witnessing a lot in the book of Acts. And witness actually takes a central role in the book of Revelation as well. Antipas, my witness. Um, this word right here is the word martus, um, which means a witness. Um, and so witness is a central theme, not just of Revelation, not just of Acts, not just of the New Testament, but of the whole Bible, um, the, the word witness, um, obviously it's a different word in the Hebrew, but it's a, it, it occurs throughout the Bible, um, and it's used for a dump, bunch of different ways. Um, the Israelites 
are called to be witnesses. They're called to bear witness of their God to the world. Isaiah 43.10, God says to the people, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. They are described as being witnesses. They are to bear witness of Yahweh in the world. And then Jesus commissions his disciples again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, the church's role, the people of God's role, is to bear witness to the life of God. Um, specifically for us as, as the church, to bear witness to the life of God that's revealed in Jesus. We are bearing witness to Jesus. Part of what I say in that, um, in that, uh, that post in the monthly newsletter is that... Um, you cannot bear witness to something that you don't see, right? You cannot bear witness to something that you are not intimately aware of. So we think of bearing witness as you see an event, and then later you tell someone about it. Um, most of us, I don't think any of us, saw Jesus die or saw Jesus' body raised. But that doesn't mean that we are not bearing witness to our experience of Christ, our experience of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so Antipas most likely did not meet Jesus, but he was a faithful witness. And that becomes central not just to, um, not just to Revelation, but to the Christian faith as a whole, is bearing witness um, to the life of God revealed in Jesus. Um, specifically, not just with our words, but through, our, through the way that we live and through the way that we act, which most likely would have been the case for Antipas, which was, you know, Antipas may be saying things, maybe it had led to his death, but it was most likely the way that he refused to to participate in um, the culture, most likely, and, and that was a that was a punishable offense by death in that time. Um, so, in the early church, many witnesses like Antipas died for their faith, and thus um, became what we now know as sounds like this word right here, martyrs. What do they call people that are killed for their faith? Martyrs, right? This is where we get that word martyr. Um, we get it from the word martus, so that the original meaning is, is simply witness. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, to die for your faith, um, but we, we, we've taken that word martyr from the, the Greek word for witness. Someone who's a faithful witness in the New Testament often is killed for their faith. Um, someone who dies for their faith is faithful to their witness, even unto death, as we read about in one of the letters last week. So let's uh, think about this. Does this description of Antipas sound familiar to anyone? Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I know I haven't asked you to memorize any parts of the book yet, but um, as a hint, chapter one, we hear this phrase. Antipas, or we don't hear Antipas, but we hear about a witness, a faithful one. Nope. Well, okay, so that's a, good, that's a good reference back to Acts, right? Yeah, so there's a faithful witness in Stephen. So in, in Revelation chapter 1, um, what, we he, what we see, chapter 1, verse 5, Grace to you and peace um, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Think about that. We are to bear witness to Jesus, and Jesus himself was a faithful witness. Um, to trace that line of what, how important witness is for the church, um, what a lot of people describe as Je what Jesus does and comes and comes to do, is ultimately in his whole life he fulfills what Israel failed at. Right? He, Jesus is the faithful one to what Israel was called to. Israel was called to bear witness to Yahweh. What Jesus comes and faithfully, as an individual, um, as God Himself, comes and bears witness. 
um, to Yahweh through his whole life. He's faithful even unto death. That's who Jesus is. He is really the first um, martyr of the Christian faith. Jesus himself is, we say that Stephen is the first martyr. In all reality, Jesus is the first martyr. He himself is killed for the faith, for his faithfulness to the journey of that, that God has called him to. And so I just think it's important um, for us to think about it. What is the significance of Antipas being described, my witness, my faithful one, um, which we've already heard that phrase in a, in, a different, in a different order, the faithful witness, as opposed to my witness, the faithful one. Um, what, what do you think is significant about, um, about Antipas being described the same way that Jesus is described? What's significant about that? study. It's called Letters from Pergamum. Um, it is a really neat, it's a fiction, um, but it's somebody, it's a Christian fiction sort of, and it's, it's written through letters, and it's actually um, the, the person Luke um, corresponding with a few different people, but it, they, they create this kind of character named Antipas, and they create it out of this, of this image of Antipas in Pergamum. Um, and I've considered like reading one letter a day while we've been in here. Maybe I'll do that, um, but it'll give it away a little bit. Um, but Antipas obviously um, is a faithful witness in that in that story, and it's just these letters, and that's really what it's describing this this man who um, is truly like faithful even unto death, faithful even unto death. Any other thoughts on that? What is significant about Antipas being described the same way that Jesus described it? It demonstrates that he was as faithful as Jesus was, and that's awesome. That's a, that's a great connection there. Anything else? One of the things I like to say is that Jesus, again, like I just mentioned a minute ago, I, I think Jesus is the first martyr of the faith um, as, as he was killed um, for being faithful. For being faithful, even unto death, Jesus was faithful, and he was the faithful witness, right? Jesus was the faithful witness to the way of God, um, and he's killed for it, um, what does this next line say about Jesus, though? I don't know if anybody can read up here. Revelation 1 5, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. If uh, Antipas was as faithful as Jesus, who remained faithful even unto death, just as Jesus did, and Jesus is just the firstborn of the dead. What does that tell us about? What's, what kind of hope do we get from that for Antipas? That he too will be 
Yeah, specifically for remaining faithful, right? Like that is, I mean, we get the, we get the different um, rewards in the way that they're described. Ultimately, all of those rewards, what, they, what, what, John is, what Jesus is saying through John is, um, you'll be raised <laughs> to new life and to the new, new creation, right? Yeah, so um, anyway, I just think that's significant in, in further um, to say that um, our call is not different from Jesus's. We're bearing witness to Jesus, but our call is not, is not different from Jesus' own call. Um, that does, that's not to say that we're each individual Jesus on our own, but rather um, that we're called to, to do as Jesus does and be faithful to the way of God, even if it means um, sacrificing everything. All right, let's look at um, the commendation for the Pergamum Church. All right, he says, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Sorry, we're... Yeah, we're still at the commendation. We, we're there still. Um, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith, um, even in the days of Antipas, a, a faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. What does this commendation tell us about per, the Pergamum church as a whole? Right? We've talked, we've talked about Antipas specifically, but what does it tell us about the Pergamum church as a whole? Um, or sorry, like accommodating, accommodating the empire um, or um, remaining faithful. It, it seems as though what he's saying about the church is that they are remaining faithful. Um, you did not deny your faith, even in the days of Antipas, right? Even in the, the difficult days, the tribulation, um, even that you're still experiencing, right? Um, so where Satan's throne is and where Satan lives, all right? He talks about Satan twice. We've already talked about this a little bit. Um, but thinking about that, thinking about that context, why might it have been particularly difficult to be a Christian in this kind of place? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the strong emphasis on, on worship, really, again, the, the idea of like worshiping these gods and worshiping the, the, the emperor alongside them is, is throughout the Roman Empire, but you have a particular emphasis for Pergamum where many people are coming to there specifically for the worship of the emperor, right? Um, people who might have businesses in Pergamum, Christians who might have businesses in, in Pergamum, who are having to uh, figure out how um, how to to survive and remain faithful? Maybe they're losing business. 
um, because of their refusal to worship. Um, there's all kinds of ways that we can imagine it taking place and, and difficult. Well, um, let's see. What else do we have on Pergamum? Um, condemnation. All right. Condemnation. Remember, commendation, good thing. Condemnation, bad thing. Um, Pergamum has some condemnation from Jesus. The message for, of condemnation for the Pergamum church says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we heard in one of the other churches that the Nicolaitans had popped up and um, they, had, they had managed to run them off um, and, and keep from, from giving in to the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Again, we don't really know a lot about the Nicolaitans. We don't know anything more than... Um, Obviously, they were false apostles. Um, but Balaam and Balak. Anybody know what is being talked about there? <clears throat> Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. Anybody know? Okay, yep. There's, a, there's clear reference to false um, religion, idolatry, um, not remaining faithful. Remember, um, one of the things I said the first day is that Revelation is ultimately about first commandment faithfulness. You shall love the Lord, or sorry, first commandment faithfulness, that you shall have no other, no other gods before me, right? Um, that's ultimately what the whole book of Revelation is about, and that seems to be what's, what this reference is. Does anybody know where Balaam and Balak come from? Okay, yeah, there is a connection there a little bit. Um, Baal, um, obviously Baal is a false god. We're going to talk about Baal again in just a minute in the next church. Um, but the, the, reference, uh, the reference to Balaam and Balak comes from Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Again, Revelation is using Old Testament images throughout. And so we see that here. Um, N.T. Wright explains the church basically made the same mistake that the Israelites were committed, er, committed when King Balak of Moab, okay, King Balak of Moab hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22 through 24. So Balaam was a, was a prophet, Balak was a king, okay? Um, Balaam was, was hired to go and curse Israel, but he can't do it. He just he cannot do it. For whatever reason, he can't, can't curse Israel. Um, but he still wanted Balak's promised reward. He wanted that money. And so he encourages the king to use a different tactic. Um, where directly attacking the people failed, and more subtle temptation might work. So what Balak does is he encourages, um, or Balaam does is he encourages King Balak um, to use Moabite women, which Moabite women throughout the Old Testament is kind of a symbol for Old Testament sexual, sexual promiscuity. Um, it's sort of a symbol throughout the Old Testament. And so um, um, Balak sends Moabite women to the Israelites, specifically to tempt Israelite men, who we presume many of them would have been married, um, to, uh, to be drawn into to, um, different sorts of relationships, obviously, marriage and otherwise. And, and through this, the Israelites are not just taking on wives from from outside of their people, which specifically the reason God doesn't want that to happen, specifically why he asks the people not to do that, 
is because um, they're going to be drawn into idolatry, which is exactly what happens in Numbers 22 through 24. The Israelites are drawn into idolatry, worshiping gods other than Yahweh. Um, and so there's a sort of unfaithfulness on two levels, obviously. Men who are already married to Israelite women, there's unfaithfulness there. And on top of that, they're, they're being unfaithful to, to Yahweh, to worshiping Yahweh. And so John uses this image from the Old Testament of Balaam and Balak um, to say that, that you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You have some there who hold to the teaching of the prophet Balaam. Um, I think it's important to note that it says you have some, right? It's not everyone. We've already gotten a pretty good commendation um, saying you're doing a good job. You're remaining faithful. But there are some of you who um, are not remaining faithful. That's ultimately what, what, John, what Jesus is saying to the people there. Um, John's saying that in some, of the Pergamum, some in the Pergamum church are giving in to the temptations to accommodate the Roman culture, right? They're not near Moab. It's not actually literally talking about Moabite people at this point, but rather the Roman culture that they are a part of. Um, they are being unfaithful. Um, what does this condemnation tell us about the Pergamum church? Maybe I kind of said a little bit of it there, but what does it, what does it tell us about the Pergamum church? I think if we go back to commendation, we can draw from that. It's a church that is faithful, but is in the process of being undermined. And they're, they're allowing it to happen, apparently. Yeah. Okay. That's, I, I think it's really important what, what Pastor Kevin was just saying, all right? Um, what's being highlighted is, is that you have some, you have some there. All right? And so that's the critique. But remember, this message isn't going to individuals. It's going to a whole church. And so the, the condemnation is for the whole church. You have some among you. Are you allowing it to happen? Maybe not. Are you not directly facing it? Are you not directly um, addressing it? What? We don't know. We don't know what exactly is going on. But the condemnation is for the whole church. And it's specifically for the sin of, of maybe a few within the church. Maybe not a lot, um, but still the, the, the condemnation is for the whole church saying, you know, you've got to do something about this. You've got to do something about this. And that tells it, that's, that's what the condemnation tells us about the church as a whole, um, not just a few people, because Jesus is not just addressing um, a few people. He's addressing the whole church. Um, it's taking some time to skip to the next slide. All right, then we get to the warning, um, and this is the next part. Sometimes it's an encouragement, um, sometimes it's, a, it's trying to keep them going, but other times it is a warning, and Pergamum gets a warning. Repent then. If not, I will come to you. Um, go ahead and point this out. You is not singular there. It's y'all. Come to y'all soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth, which we know represents the word of God coming from Jesus' mouth. It's an image from chapter 1. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, so, repent. Um, is, is John telling just the people who are sinning repent? Or is he talking to the whole church still? What do you think? 
I've made my opinion clear, I guess, but what do you think? There's a whole other lesson on repentance. I, guess, uh, I would say I would go back to kind of what you made that some are doing it, but maybe it's somewhat being accepted by all or not. Yeah. So I, I would say it would apply all. Yeah, that's my opinion. Um, so despite the condemnation being about some who are being unfaithful, the warning to repent is for everyone. It's like the letter, it is directed to the whole church. The whole church plays a role in repentance. Um, this is why, like not, not, not every week, but this is why, um, like this past Sunday, I really think it's important to sometimes incorporate a prayer of repentance that we all pray together, right? Um, it's not to say... Um, there is an individual level of that that some may need um, to do, but as a community, we are saying, hey, we've, got, we've still got more growing to do. We've still got more faithfulness to, to demonstrate. We, and so it's that idea that as a church, as a whole, um, they are um, saying, hey, we've got some sin in our midst. Maybe it's not all of us. Maybe it's not even most of us. But as a church, we acknowledge that we are one body, right? And so if there is sin within one part of the body, the whole um, body sort of takes that on and says, we got this. We got to do this together, um, and that is good. Um, in that um, we have each other to to do that with, and I think that's a, such an important part of what what the warning there is. Um, so, how do we take this warning seriously? With all that in mind, how do we take this warning seriously as readers today, and not succumb to societal pressures that lead us away from following Jesus faithfully? How do we do this together today, together as a church? How do we take it seriously? Any thoughts? Well, I picture it as a church that is a good church, a faithful church, in the community doing this, you know, doing what we're called to do to, to make disciples. Yeah. And yet some come in that are under under that are coming in. Whether the intent is for it or not, they are coming in and undercutting the ministry that God has okay. given to us. And so we need to keep our ears and eyes open for these for these things to happen yeah. and to act accordingly as need be. Uh, and lovingly, of course. Um, I think we should take that seriously because that can happen. I've seen it happen in the church where a church was doing, was really reaching out and people were coming to Christ and yeah. being baptized and then you have one or two that come in that would undermine what's going on. And it, I've, I've seen it almost destroy a church. Yeah. So it's very relevant uh, yeah. today because that same thing happens. Right. Yeah, I think the part of this question that I really want to emphasize um, is the, the, those societal pressures that lead us away from following Jesus. I think anytime I, I use the word society um, or culture, um, those are some words that really probably conjure up some different things, different emotions for us, right? Um, even the... the uh, uh, the idea that they need to be saved from the perverse culture, right, is part of the message in, in Revelation. Um, 
I think that we just need to be careful. I really want to, I want, I want us to be, we should be thinking about this question all the time as individuals and as a church. How do we be careful not to succumb to societal pressures that lead us away from following Jesus faithfully? I worry that we can, we can put an ideological spin on this at times where we, we point to an ideology and say that ideology is drawing the church away. And I think that happens. But what I think what ends up happening when we do that is um, we stand in our place of our ideology and we point to that ideology. And when I say ideology, it can be liberalism, socialism, conservatism, those sorts of isms. Um, that, that dominate our, our society in, in a lot of ways and that we all probably identify you know, in, in those somewhere. Um, but I think it can be easy on any side of the spectrum or aisle for us to stand where we are and say, you, you're the problem. You're the one that's causing these problems. And I think that can happen. I think that, that that's, we need to be aware of that and we need to take a prophetic role in that. But I think really what, what we have to think about is, is what, what smaller things... Uh, these big things, these big isms, right? But what smaller things have been with the church for a long time, maybe, um, that really aren't from the church but are from the society, from society that, that's pressured us, that is us accommodating the culture that we live in. Maybe it's not culture as in secular culture, but maybe um, in the way that we see it, but it's culture as in um, uh, the way that the West sees the world, right? Individualism is a big one, I think. Um, and that's not so much an ideology, but ideology, but the way that we um, emphasize the importance of one individual. Um, I think I think it's important. I don't want to. I don't want this to, to. I don't want us to answer this question from from the place of my ideology is better because it's this, this, or that, and that ideology over there is the problem. But rather, what smaller things um, are we at risk of being? Um, are we at risk of succumbing to, to pressures, different smaller pressures? Not these big ones that we can kind of easily say, yeah, we're not, we're not going to be interested in that. Um, anyway, I think that's an important part of this. Okay, let's move on. Again, we're making our way around. Now, I think it should be obvious now that the way that, the way that John addresses these messages um, is um, kind of just kind of following this order. So we did Ephesus, then we did Smyrna, then we did Pergamum, and now we're going to Thyatira. And what's interesting is all of these messages are being read by all of the churches. Um, he's waving their dirty laundry to all of the church, all of these different cities. And so they're all reading them, but he orders it in such a way that he knows that the most likely the way that the letter is going to make its way around. Again, this, the Revelation is a letter written to all of these places, which means it was probably first brought to Ephesus, and then it's going to be brought to Smyrna, and then it's going to be brought to Pergamum, and then it's going to be brought to Thyatira. And so it makes this big circle in the Asia Minor area of the Roman Empire. So let's read Revelation 2, verse 19 through 29. This one's a little bit longer, and you might not even be able to see it on the screen, but I'm going to read it from here. And to the angel of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patience, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead, 
And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works, in the end I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod, as with clay pots, as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my Father. To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear to listen, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All right. Um, message gets a little bit more violent there. Um, uh, and, uh, and the imagery, obviously, um, is still um, biblical imagery. All right. Who's Jezebel? I know who Jezebel is. She's pretty mean. She's pretty mean. Pretty good way to say it. Same Jezebel as the Old Testament man. Yes, almost definitely. Yes, for sure. He is pulling from the Old Testament imagery. We just heard about um, Balaam, um, and that's an Old Testament reference, most definitely. And this is almost definitely, one hundred percent, an Old Testament image. We're going to see this throughout the Book of Revelation. Old Testament image. Um, So. Let's, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? We're supposed to do the commendation first. Let's do the commendation, then we'll get to the condemnation. Commendation, commendation for the church in Thyatira. I know your works, which is then described as your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. All of these are works. Isn't that interesting to think about? Love is a work, right? Love's not a feeling. Love is a work. It's an action. Faith. Not just something that we think about to ourselves, but faith is an action. It spurs us into action. Service, obviously, is serving and caring for others. Um, patient endurance, um, which is really what, what Revelation is all about, encouraging patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first. What does this commendation tell us about the church at Thyatira? What do you think? Okay, yes, good. Yeah, so obviously there's like a progression of, of growth, right? Your works, your last works, your most recent works are greater than the first, right? They're progressing in their life and their witness. What else? Any other thoughts? The commendation is so short to Thyatira. And the condemnation is very long. But I don't think that that should be how we measure how good Thyatira is doing because this is a pretty good commendation. I mean, even what is said later about um, those who are remaining faithful, those who are remaining in patient endurance, um, is good, right? I know that your last works are greater than the first. That means they are progressing. They're not digressing. They're not getting worse as in... um, um, shoot, now I can't remember which one. What, one of the churches return to your first love, right? Instead of um, instead of your most the most recent way. So instead of digressing, they are are regressing. I guess is the word there. Um, they are progressing in their faith and love and service and patient endurance. Right? That is good. Um, any other thoughts on that before I move on? Got about it's a little over ten minutes, so. Uh, let's get into the condemnation for the church in Thyatira. Okay, so I got ahead earlier. So Jezebel, really pretty mean mean gal, right? Um, so Jezebel, like 
Balaam and Balak, all right, um, was another biblical villain, okay? She's a bad guy in the Old Testament, um, bad woman in the Old Testament. Uh, N.T. Wright, again, I referenced him earlier. He explains Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, right? So King Ahab, another big bad guy, um, and seems to have been the cause of at least some of Ahab's wickedness. Ahab was a pretty bad guy anyway, but um, if you read the story, it seems pretty clear that um, when he marries Jezebel, that, that's like that's pretty bad at that point. He's going downhill. Um, their story is told in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 22. Um, they're around when Elijah the prophet is around, right? There's lots of um, arguments and fights between Jezebel and, um, and Elijah. Um, so their story, she, she definitely wanted Elijah dead. That is right. So uh, Jeze- or, so their story is told from 16, chapter 16 to verse 22. It ends when, whenever Ahab dies. Um, but Jezebel's own story, her personal story, comes to an unpleasant end in 1 Kings chapter 9. Um, Jezebel, like, I think I put a reference in there wrong. I think it's supposed to be 19. Jezebel, like the woman of Mo, women of Moab, also a symbol of unfaithfulness, right? A symbol in the Old Testament of unfaithfulness. Jezebel, just like the Moab, Moabite women, um, she is not an Israelite. Jezebel, she is not an Israelite um, either. Um, and she uh, calls, I believe she was from the north part of the kingdom. I can't remember the, the name off the top of my head. Assyria, I think. Um, she introduces the worship of Baal, right? So we talked about Baal, and, and Balaam um, obviously gets that name. There's a, that, that word Baal is just the word master or husband. It could be used either one of those. Um, and so that it's used for other gods, but there's one god specifically who's named Baal or, or Baal. Um, he is a rival god to um, the god of Israel, Yahweh. They, he is one in that area, in that time period, that was worshipped by most of the people surrounding Israel. And so Jezebel is the one who introduces the worship of Baal to Israel. Um, and that really was at the heart of many of their evils. Um, they had other ones, but in First Kings uh, at 19, I believe it's 19, I put 9, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be 19. Um, it's described as whoredoms and sorceries. The whoredoms and sorceries of Jezebel, um, basically it's the same story. It's the same thing where the people of God are led away, they're led astray um, by um, other gods. They, are, um, they begin to accommodate. Jezebel becomes a symbol of accommodation um, to say, hey, yeah, you can. And a lot of times, I think I've talked about this before in, this, in, in our class before or in a sermon, but a lot of times it wasn't really let's stop worshiping Yahweh and start worshiping Baal or some other god. It was rather, let's worship Yahweh. I mean, Yahweh's cool to us sometimes, but let's also worship Baal. And so it was this idea of let's worship multiple gods. Um, and obviously that's not first commandment faithfulness, right? You, have, you shall have no other gods, right? That's, that's the idea that God desires is you are not going to worship me alongside a bunch of other gods as the people in um, Canaan do or the people in Rome do, right? You are not to worship multiple gods. And so the idea here that uh, Jesus is speaking to the church in Thyatira about is that you're not to worship other gods. You are not to accommodate the empire. You are not to in any way live in such a way that, that your witness that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the way, is, is being somehow diminished in any way at all or, or again. And that's what happens when we begin to accommodate. I talked about that word accommodate. Accommodate means, well, I'm going to keep worshiping Jesus, but maybe I need to, um, 
I don't know, I'm trying to come up with an example, a modern day example, but all of them are kind of silly. Um, I, I want to worship Jesus, but I don't really want to go to church to do it, so I'll just, I'll just say that I'm a Christian, but not actually practice Christian faith at all, because I want to do this or that or the other thing on Sundays, right? I, I really want to be a Christian. I want, to, I want to worship Jesus. I think it sounds cool. It's really neat. Um, but uh, I'd really like to continue living my life partying and, and, and whatever it may be, drugs and, and whoredoms and sorceries, as, as First Kings tells us. Um, so the idea is that, that we try to keep worshiping God while um, not being changed by the way of God, not fully accepting the way of God as, as the way to life. We're still trying to find life, experience life in other places. And for those Christians in the Roman Empire in the first century, the temptation was ultimately to survive. <laughs> That's part of what's so tough about it. And also a little bit easier than where we're at in our day and time is that um, it's about survival for them. For us, it's a little more insidious even. Um, anyway, we're going to get into to all that as we get into the book of Revelation. But I want to ask, what does this condemnation say about the church in Thyatira? Any other thoughts on this? kind of what I was I was thinking and and I think that sometimes tolerant actually I think tolerant is usually negative anyway it's like I'm just going to tolerate you right like like I don't really like you but I'm going to tolerate you so even in that way it's negative but the idea that we should um, that we should tolerate uh, evil behavior right we should tolerate sinfulness that we should tolerate um, I, I kind of love the image of how much you now I forgot how first team described it. Uh, whoredoms and sorceries. <laughs> Maybe not in a literal way, but um, again, what those represent, right? Um, being drawn away from, from God, right? Tolerate. Yeah, any other thoughts? Why is it so easy for believers at, in Thyatira to fall prey to deception? Why is it so easy for them to fall prey? Right. All right, well, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Um, my goal... My goal tonight is to get through the last three churches, um, working through these messages to the, to the seven churches. The hope is to get through the last three tonight. Um, we'll see if we can do that. Um, so we're going to be looking at messages to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's the whole, the whole chapter, um, the whole book, or the whole Revelation chapter three. Uh, let's uh, look at this message again. I've got, I've got it on here. Um, I got it zoomed in on there. Again, that's over there on that poster. 
um, but just kind of getting a look at this, um, the, the persecution, the immorality, the affluence, and the apathy that are going on in the different churches. Hey, sorry. Um, and I think what I want us, because we haven't really gotten a lot of, we've gotten some apathy, some affluence, but we're really particularly going to be um, hearing about those two as well as, um, whereas the emphasis on the previous churches has really been on persecution. We'll get a little bit of that tonight as well. But um, anyway, again, the, there's there's a lot of similarities in all of these messages, and we'll talk about that once we get through these last three. All right, so we're making our way around. Just as a reminder, last week I told you the order that John is writing these messages down follows the order that this that the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation as a whole, would have made its way around. So we started in Ephesus, went to Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, and now we're in Sardis. Um, Sardis was another city known as a commercial city, had lots of markets, um, lots of goods were um, sold there in that town. It was a very, and it was a wealthy city like many of these cities in this area and, and, the, and the cities in Rome. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and, it, and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not erase your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All right, so commendation for the church in Sardis, kind of following the same pattern that we've been doing as we've looked at each of these churches. Um, first, looking at the commendation, the good things that are going on in the church at Sardis. Um, verse 4, he says, Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So I'm kind of following the same pattern that we've been following all along, where we talk about the commendation first, and then we talk about the condemnation. But Because um, that's how most of the letters, all the letters, as a matter of fact, kind of flow, um, except for this one, where the commendation is kind of later on. Um, that's partly because there's not a lot of things to commend them for. It's very short. It's just that there's a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Um, so in this message, the order is flipped a little bit. Um, and because there's, again, because there's not a lot to um, commend them for. And so uh, still kind of following uh, our pattern, we're going to talk about this commendation really quick because the condemnation is pretty long. We need to get into that. So what do you, uh, or what does this commendation tell us about the church in Sardis? Maybe, maybe thinking about it in the context of the whole message, um, based on the whole message, what does this commendation um, tell us about the church in Sardis? Yeah. 
Right, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Very similar to what's going on in the rest of the churches. Um, there's some, um, I think there was one, there was one other church that talked about how there were some in the church who were sinful. Um, and it's kind of a reverse of, of that in that there was one, one of the churches, can't remember off the top of my head now, where most of the church was doing well, but there was a few within the church that were not. It's almost like we've, this, in this church it's flipped, where, where the church as a whole is, um, is really not doing well, um, not remaining faithful as they should. But there are a few there who are, who are attempting to remain faithful even in the midst of that. Um, so let's, let's get into the condemnation for the church in Sardis, because we'll, we'll talk about the condemnation a little bit within the condemnation, but I really want to get into this because it's pretty long, right? <clears throat> it's pretty significant. Um, I know your works. This is how a lot of the letters start. I know your works. And then it goes on, are the works good or are the works bad? Well, we, we find that the works are not great here. Um, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Um, you we wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of God. And one of the things I want to talk about when we get, go through the book of Revelation is um, how much art um, is inspired by the book of Revelation. I've got a piece of art that we'll show in a little bit. But not just art as in paintings or drawings, but music, um, poetry, the, the amount of... Um, Songs that we have even in our hymn book that are inspired based on images in Revelation just goes to highlight how um, how strong the imagery is in this book. Um, my favorite artist is Bob Dylan. He has a song that's based on this these two these few verses. Um, he said, uh, "You know, it's wake up. When are you going to wake up and strengthen what remains? Um, the little good that is left in the the, the church. When are you going to wake up and strengthen what remains?" Um, but I kind of just like to highlight the different songs and, and artwork that comes out of it. But um, I just, whenever I was reading this and working on this, I remembered that song. And it's just funny. It's, it's interesting how much imagery is, is based on this. All right. So he says, you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Um, you are at the point of death. And I have not found your words perfect in the sight of my God. That's what I want to focus on. Um, what does this condemnation tell us about the church of Sardis? Kind of like a football team. They're wearing the uniform, but they really ain't part yeah, of the team. That's good. Or is it play? I guess it's playing church. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Um, one of my professors at Trebekah said that um, Christianity is not about wearing a cool T-shirt, you know, right? You know, there's there are lots of Christian T-shirts that people get and wear. It's it's more than just a T-shirt, right? It's more than a bumper sticker. I like that because it's it's saying you have a name, um, which I don't, I'm not getting into this very much, but the the, the word name appears four times in this um, in this uh, in this message to this particular church. Four times uh, the word name comes up. You have a name of being alive, but your works are dead. Matter of fact, right here, um, just fun, just neat thing. Persons, um, our English translations felt like it would not make any sense to say this, but that is actually the word, the same word for name. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, and so the the word the word name appears, and I think it's almost a play on you have it in name, right? Right? Maybe you're you're you're. You've got the jersey or whatever. You've got the Christian jersey. 
You're, you're saying in name that you are alive, but in reality you are dead, right? You, you're bearing that appearance, um, but you're not actually alive. Um, what else? What, does this, what do you think this condemnation tells us about the church? <coughs> So another thing that, another uh, sort of um, grammatical or or, um, um, vocabulary thing that can be helpful here is that the word perfect, in some translations they'll translate it this way, um, but that word can also mean complete. Your works are not complete. Um, and, and I think that's a, that might be a better way of understanding what he's, what's being said here. Your works are not found complete. That word perfect can be a really loaded word for us in the English. Um, it's, uh, perfect Perfection is, is obviously something that you know we talk about a lot, but um, in Scripture, oftentimes what, what's really being talked about more is is um, you're meeting your goal, you're meeting your your um, uh, your your works, right? You're you're doing what you were created to do, right? So, what do you think it means for um, the church's works to be incomplete in the sight of God? What does it mean for the church's works to be incomplete? be related to evangelism they're not putting into practice or even even preaching what they say they believe yeah maybe so yeah i think um certainly it's a signal that um there's a lot of work to be done right Um, and maybe they're not working towards it maybe it's almost like they're acting as if their work is complete but in reality there's still much to be done um well i want to kind of rush through this but this is really neat um, and, and connecting it to to to, um, to what we're trying to do in the book of Revelation, you'll see this in all three of the book, all three of the, um, the messages today. Um, Sardis, um, a, a neat thing about Sardis is that they uh, they have a history at this point of being really really bad at defending their city. Um, there's a there's an event called the um, called the Siege of Sardis. Um, it kind of actually happens twice in their history. Um, this is, uh, it happens by uh, Cyrus, the Persian. Um, so we hear about Cyrus some in the Old Testament. So he was obviously a really important figure for the, for the empire of Persia. Um, and then another person named Antiochus. Um, I cannot remember which empire he was a part of. Both of these uh, leaders defeated um, the, um, the, the, the city of Sardis in the same way. So uh, twice in its history, enemy armies captured the city of Sardis due to its lack of diligence by the due to lack of diligence by the city. 
The city was built as an impre with impregnable great walls. So you see these big walls up here that's being depicted by this image. Um, it's kind of like a Titanic situation. If y'all watched the movie Titanic or kind of read about what happens with the Titanic. But they build this giant ship, right? And they say it's unsinkable. It's too big to sink. Like we can, it cannot be sunk. And so they don't put enough life rafts on there. That's one of the things that the movie depicts anyway is that they don't put a, enough life rafts because they think, well, we don't need them because we're not going to sink. This ship's way too big to sink. Well, what happens? They go out and they sink. Well, that's kind of what happens in Sardis in that they build this big city and they think, nobody's getting in here. These walls are massive. They're huge. And so what it causes them to do is be, be really lax in their guards. They didn't put very many guards up on, on the walls. And so during the 6th century B.C., uh, so before Christ, so, so 600 years before Christ, Cyrus the Persian laid siege to Sardis, and he was successful in capturing the city when one, one person, one man, was able to get over the wall and then find a way to let the rest of the, the um, soldiers in. He was able to, to get in because their walls were very unguarded. They didn't put enough guards up there, um, and so it caused them to get defeated because they had this idea that we're just too big to be, to be beaten, and so we don't really even need to put that many guards up. And then 300 years after that, um, so still about 300 years before Christ, um, Antiochus III was able to capture the city Again, because there just wasn't very many defenders on the wall. They didn't have a big army. They had not developed a big army because they thought, we got big walls, we don't really need that big of an army. And so they were able to defeat them really easily. So I just think that's an interesting memory, all right, history. Now let's look back again at, um, at the, 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 uh, the words from this message, okay? Um, what in these words might remind the people of Sardis? Because remember, a lot of these Christians probably are from Sardis. They knew the history of their city. They knew about their reputation as being this city that uh, said they were too big to get beat. Um, what of these of this um, passage might make you think of that idea that um, some individual, one man, comes like a thief, right? And I'm giving away a little bit there, obviously. But just kind of um, point these out real quick, because I am to move a little bit quicker. Wake up and strengthen. Stay alert is another way that this can be translated, right? So why do the walls fall? Why, or why does Sardis fall to these two um, kingdoms, to these other empires? Because they're not being diligent, right? They're not um, staying alert. And then the warning, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You won't know. And so this idea that, um, that what John is doing, what Jesus is doing in all of these letters He's not only pulling images from the Old Testament, but he's, he's pulling images from the own, their own history of the city um, and a, a play on words and, and, and what's going on in the history there. Just like, um, you know, just as the city had fallen in the past because of lack of vigilance, so now the Sardians are reminded to be watchful. If they do not wake up, Christ says, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come. This, I don't think, so one of the things that I was reading is that a lot of times when we hear that language of I will come like a thief, like a thief in the night, that's, a, that's language that's used in other parts of the New Testament. Usually that is referring to the second coming, right? We don't know which hour Christ is going to come again. Um, and while obviously the Apocalypse Revelation is a lot about the second coming of Christ, I actually don't think that he's talking about the second coming here um, because Jesus is going to come 
regardless of whether or not they wake up, whether or not they stay alert. And so it's not really, it's more of a warning that if they don't get it together, Christ is going to come. Not, not as the second coming, but soon, in order to make sure that the church um, um, really does fall and isn't, isn't bearing Christ's name incorrectly, right? And so the warning is that Jesus will come in judgment upon the church if they don't repent. And John uses this imagery that is, again, found in several parts of the New Testament. Um, and it's a play on the past, the history of the, the Sardians themselves. Michael Gorman says, Since a minority is said to have not soiled its clothing, in, in verse 4, we should understand that this state of slumber is not apathy. Um, it's not them being apathetic. But it's even worse than that. It's actively getting soiled through certain works. So if you're getting dirty, it's not because you're being apathetic. It's not because you're sitting back and not doing anything. It's because you're getting in the mud, right? And so it's um, they're actively getting soiled through certain works while they're clinging to a good reputation, right? That name. They're assuming nothing is wrong. Thus the main problem, it's not indifference. It's not that they're being indifferent about the gospel, but it's presuming that um, the way that they're living is good in the way that, the way that they're supposed to. The need of these, those at Sardis is to identify and end the inappropriate activity. Figure out what is causing them to get soiled, right? What is it causing them to, um, to compromise their faith? That is what so many of these letters are about. And then Mitchell Reddish says, perhaps the church at Sardis had compromised its faith through accommodating the society, accommodation to society, to such an extent that the church barely existed anymore. To those outside the church, again, so their name, their reputation, it seemed alive. Perhaps they even seemed like they were thriving because it readily accepted and involved itself in a culture, social and in the culture, social and political activities of the larger society of the city. Right? Um, they're measured by measured by the standards of the prevailing culture. The church was vibrant. Seemed to be alive. It had the, the the name. It had the reputation of a good group of people, but measured by the standards of Christ. However, the church was, for all practical purposes, dead. I, I, what he's saying here, and what he says here, that any church, ancient or modern, that gauges its health only by measures of society. Are you popular? Do you have a bunch of people that go there? Um, do you have good financial resources? Do you have social prestige and acceptance? If we measure the success of, an organ, of a church in that way, um, we're, at dan we're in danger of mistaking a sick religion for a vital faith. Here's what he's saying there, what Mitchell is saying, um, is that, that I, here's, what, here's my interpretation of it, my implication of it. We look at churches, and we see they're full. Their pews are slap full of people. They got tons of people, they got tons of activity, they got tons of money. If we assume that means that that church is healthy, that they're a vibrant church, we might be at, at risk of really missing, missing what's really going on. And that's not to say that all big, full churches are unhealthy or are bad, but a lot of times the reason that a church is able to grow and, and get that big and have that much money is because they're being a little bit accommodating of the culture. Um, they're giving in, they're, they're, they're spending more time on, on programs than they are on, on the gospel and and, and understanding scripture well. Um, I really wish we could focus our entire lesson on that, that topic, but um, we'll, we'll move on from there. I think the point being that we have to be careful not to, to measure the success of our church or any other church based on those metrics that we would say a business is successful, right? A business is successful if they got tons of customers. 
If a business is successful if they've got lots of income, right? We don't measure a church's success in that way. That's not to say we don't want more people. Not to say that we don't need more money sometimes, right? But it's to say that, that we have to be careful about measuring the success or of a church based on that. So the warnings to the church in Sardis, wake up. There's five imperatives. Um, imperatives in the, in, the, in the language sense is like do this or it's bad, right? Do this, you better do this. Um, and, and these appear as such. Wake up. Remain alert. Strengthen what remains. So what good there is, focus on that, strengthen that. Remember what you received and heard. Go back to the beginning, right? We've heard Jesus say this to one of the other churches. Remember what you received and, your, and heard, your first love. Obey it and repent, right? So those are the, those, that's the warning to Sardis. All right, let's move on to Philadelphia because Philadelphia is another um, interesting one. Um, Philadelphia, the one thing about the city that I want you to think about right now, there's obviously lots of information I can share about it. Does anybody know what Philadelphia means? We have obviously have a Philadelphia in the U.S., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Anybody know what that, that word means? Yeah, so it's brotherly love. So, so, the, so what their, their, their thing is in, in um, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is we're the city of brotherly love, right? The city of love um, for, for our brothers and sisters. That's important, I think, again, because of what we see John or what we see Jesus do with the message to the church. All right, verse 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one takes away your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven in my new name, my own new name. Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Um, so, uh, just kind of talk about, we don't, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the imagery that's used for Jesus in each of these. I said at the beginning that most of those images come from chapter 1. Um, there's a little bit that comes from chapter 1 here, but actually most of this is from the imagery from the Old Testament. So, Jesus introduces himself, the addressee, as these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. Alright, so first, the Holy One, the True One, that's a pretty common, um, some common language from the Old Testament that is referring to God. That language is reserved for God in the Old Testament, right? So once again, Jesus in Revelation is getting a title or um, or name that is typically in the Old Testament and in that tradition reserved for God alone. Um, that says a lot about who we believe Jesus to be, right? Um, then this part right here, I when I first read it again. Um, this time, I was like, what in the world? Uh, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one opens. Now, there is a little bit of imagery in the first chapter of Jesus having keys, right? Do you remember the keys that Jesus has in the first chapter? He has the keys to death and Hades. 
So here again, Jesus is said to have keys. And so there is that little connection to chapter 1. But really, this is an image from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 22, Eliakim, um, who was uh, basically just a, 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 um, a kind of a humble servant, a steward um, for the, the king Hezekiah, is said to, um, he's going to have placed on his shoulder the key to the house of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. And that's an image, but it's specifically talking about um, he's going to have this, kind of have the authority over the palace of David, um, the palace which belonged to David's son and Hezekiah specifically. Um, so it's an image from the Old Testament, but basically what it's saying that sort of the authority that, that goes with the house of David, um, Christ will, will have. Um, and that's where that image comes from. Comes from. So look at, let's look at the commendation for the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. Um, so what I want to focus on is you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then you have kept my word of endurance. That's really what they're being commended for. Um, is that keep, they have kept Jesus' word. They have not denied Jesus' name. You have kept my word of endurance. So you stay faithful, another way to say that. Um, so what, what does this commendation tell us about the church in Philadelphia? Any thoughts? All right. Yeah, they're doing what they're supposed to, right? They're, they're keeping... He has kept the word. He has kept my word of endurance, right? Any other thoughts? Yeah, so really they're being praised for their faithfulness, which is exactly what is prescribed to all the other churches who are not being praised, right? Remain faithful, stay faithful. Become faithful, right? That is the, the call. Remain loyal. Keep the word. Kept, keep my word of endurance, right? So that, that's the call. Um, what they're being praised for is exactly what um, some of the others are struggling with, right? And so, um, you know, the indication that is being made here, again, we're not given a ton of information about what's going on. John seems to know a lot about what's going on in these different cities, but... Um, we, we don't know. We don't know. But what we can indicate from this, he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who said they are Jews and are not, that are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Um, so synagogue is a, obviously a word that is used to describe a, a group of um, Jews who live in a certain area. In this case, there is apparently a, a good-sized group of Jewish people who live in Philadelphia. And they end up, they are actually the main persecutors of the church in Philadelphia, more so than the, than the people of the city, the, the Romans who live in the city. It's the Jews who are um, actually uh, doing a lot of persecuting of the, um, of the Philadelphian Christians. So I want to be careful because I don't want us to hear anything anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic in this language. Obviously, this language, strong language, synagogue of Satan, has been used in pretty dangerous ways in the past, in anti-Semitic ways. Um, the message is is not against Jews or synagogues as a whole, right? John himself is a Jew. Um, he's a Jewish Christian. A lot of the people that he's writing to in Philadelphia are likely Jewish Christians. They're Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? And so John isn't, or Jesus isn't condemning 
synagogues as a whole or Jewish people as a whole. Um, he's frustrated with these Jewish people who are um, not, not only refusing to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're persecuting Jewish people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, they are not having any love for their brothers or sisters. So go back to the name, the word Philadelphia. They are not sharing love between um, their, their fellow Jews who, who just believe that Jesus is the Christ. Um, and then this, this idea here, I will, they will learn that I have loved you. All right? Now Jesus talks about loving the people quite a bit and sharing love. But again, I think it particularly stands out here for those in the, in the church of Philadelphia, of brotherly love of, um, that, that Christ is going to demonstrate there in Philadelphia to those that are not showing brotherly love um, that Christ, who Christ loves and who God favors um, those who accept Jesus as the Christ, right? Um, I think that's a significant point there. All right, so commendation for the church in Philadelphia and more there. Um, they will learn that I love you. Okay, I just talked about that. All right. So another thing that we, I just want to make note of, um, this part right here might be a little confusing. Um, in verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word of endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. But this seems particularly confusing because um, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, it's very clear that if you are a Christian, you're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience trials and tribulations, right? Um, especially in this time period in the Roman Empire. Um, it's kind of expected. The, the purpose is to remain faithful despite it. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, almost as if um, these particular Christians in Philadelphia have somehow managed to figure out a way to avoid trials and temptations. Well, that's not true because they're experiencing it right now. So what does Jesus mean? Well, the word keep could also be guard or protect. I will guard, I will protect, I will keep you um, in, the, in the hour of trial. The word from could also be translated as to come out of. Um, we might say to come through, okay? So another way that this could be translated, and this is up for interpretation, right? is that Jesus will guard and protect them through the hour of trial, right? Not as if they're going to be snatched away from temptation, they're going to be snatched away from trial and tribulations, um, but rather that through those trials, through their tri those tribulations, Christ will be with them. He will be keeping them. He will protect them. Um, he will be with them the whole way. And so I think that's an important note about this uh, commendation is not that they are going to somehow be snatched away from the, from the hour of trial, but rather Christ will be with them through it. Um, condemnation for the church in Philadelphia, nothing bad. Woo. They're doing pretty good over there. All right, challenge to the church in Philadelphia. I am coming soon, so hold fast. So keep doing what you're doing. In other words, if you're having to hold fast, that means, again, to go back to the trials and tribulations. That means there's probably still trials and tribulations to come. Um, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Um, that's another image that we're going to get to later on. You're probably very familiar with the mark of the beast in the, old, in the, in the book of Revelation. Um, a lot of people think about that. They don't realize there's also a mark of the lamb in the book of Revelation. We're going to get to the mark of the lamb, the mark of the beast later on, obviously. Um, but that's what this is referring to, is um, that they are going to receive the mark of the lamb um, the name of God on their head. This is also very much an image from the Old Testament 
Um, if you look up where the priests are described, their, their garments are described in the Old Testament. One of the things that they have is the name of Yahweh somewhere on them. It, it's kind of confusing about where it might be placed. Some believe it's on the forehead. Um, some believe it's somewhere on the arm. The name of Yahweh is on them. It's the mark of God's name. And so that's what this is an image of from the Old Testament. And so, again, the call to hold fast is more evidence that Christ isn't telling the church that they will avoid trials and temptations, but rather that Christ will be with them through them. Um, and so uh, the call, man, the challenge to the church is to continue, to, to continue to hold fast, to continue to remain faithful. All right, let's get into Laodicea, the last church, final church, and I've got just a little bit of time to get through it. So um, the message finally makes it to Laodicea. So Laodicea, I want you to keep this in mind, all right, remember this. Laodicea is known for three things. There are three things that Laodicea is known for um, as a city. One, they have a great banking industry there. Um, there there's gold deposits there. Um, it's a place that other, other people from other cities would actually go to to borrow money. It was known for its banking industry. It was also known for its textile productions. Textiles like cloth, clothing, um, towels, that type of thing, cloth. Right, so they made textiles there, and then the final thing was they had a medical school there. There was a great medical school in Laodicea that lots of people went to to learn how to be doctors, medical doctors. So those three things: banking, textile, and medical school. Now you can imagine those three things would make a city very wealthy, which is exactly the case. Laodicea is a very wealthy. As a matter of fact, it's the wealthiest city in this area. Laodicea is. Um, and we've said that about several of them, that several of them are wealthy cities. So Laodicea, in a group of very wealthy cities, is a particularly wealthy city. Um, the city was actually so wealthy that in 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake, actually. Um, there was a massive earthquake that took that did a lot of damage to both all three of these cities, Sardis, Philadelphia, and, and Laodicea, these last two that we're talking about today. Well, Sardis and Philadelphia got help from the Roman Empire to help them rebuild. Laodicea refused any money that the empire would give. They said, we got enough money. We don't need your money. We're good. They're part of the Roman Empire. They get destroyed. The Roman Empire was actually basically just offering tax breaks on Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea to help them rebuild their cities. And Laodicea said, no thanks. We can do it ourselves. That's how wealthy they were. Um, that they refused money from the, from the Roman Empire. They re rebuilt the city out of their own riches. Um, Think about the sort of hubris that that takes of a whole city to say that, no, we don't want your money to the Roman Empire. We can do it ourselves. Um, so keep that in mind as we, we read, read this last message to the last final church. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot, so... So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I, I, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe yourself and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you, and you with me. 
to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But anyone who has an ear to listen, has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Um, so to kind of, again, address sort of what Jesus is describing about himself, some of them have been easy because it's like, oh, this is an image from chapter 1. Um, this one doesn't have as many images from, the chap- from chapter 1. Again, um, the words of the Amen. So, uh, again, this is an image from the Old Testament, a lang- the language from the Old Testament. Amen in the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament as well, as a way of signaling what is true, what is valid. So when we say Amen at the end of the prayer, we are pronouncing what we have said as true and valid. Um, Jesus, in that light, is the ultimate amen, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life, John, John tells us. Um, the, the Gospel of John tells us. Um, Jesus is the epitome of truth and faithfulness. He's the amen, right? Uh, he is the faithful and true witness. Now, that is an image that we see in the Old Testament, in, the, in chapter 1, about who Jesus is, the faithful and true witness. And then finally, this other very strong language, he is the origin of God's creation. Very, very strong language. Once again, saying a lot about who Jesus is. A lot of our Christology, which is to say that we recognize Christ not just as the the Jewish Messiah, not just the Christ, but God, right? God in flesh. So as Christians, that's what we say about Jesus. A lot of that theology comes out of the book of Revelation. Revelation has such a high Christology. Jesus is um, not just the Messiah, the Christ of Israel, but he is God. Um, one of the one of the um, three persons of the Trinity, right? And so, um, part of that idea is that Jesus is not a created creature, right? Jesus isn't created by God. Um, that's why in our in our um, creeds we say that he was begotten, not made. Um, Jesus was not made by God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in flesh. And so Jesus, as the origin of God's creation, is an important image of who Christ is. Jesus is not created by God, but is the origin, the source of creation. God creates through Jesus, through the person of Jesus Christ. And so as the source of creation, Christ speaks with ultimate, ultimate creative authority to the church. He has ultimate authority. Um, Commendation for the church in Philadelphia, nada. Um, nothing good to say to Philadelphia. So the opposite of Laodicea, right? Laodicea had only good stuff. Well, um, or sorry, uh, Philadelphia had only good stuff. Laodicea has no good stuff. All right, so condemnation for the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. This is probably one of the, the better known parts of the messages to the churches. Most people are familiar with this message. Um, that you are neither hot nor cold. It's one of the best images that preachers like to use in preaching. Um, so let's talk about what, the, what this means. What do you hear when you hear that image? If you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. Um, what, what do you think is being said there? It's a complacent in your status. Okay, complacent. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, so that's, right, there you go. So it comes down there, you said, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. I need nothing. If we're saying that as Christians, we've missed it. We've missed it a lot, right? If we as Christians are saying, I don't need anything. 
which is really what Laodicea says right when that earthquake comes. So it's that imagery again playing on the past of, of Laodicea. It's no wonder that the Christians that, that are formed there, they still got a little bit of that Laodicean in them, right? That's actually a word in our dictionary, um, Laodicean, it, and, it come, and it means that. Um, it's, a, it's a word that, that some people use to, to describe someone who is complacent, um, it was sort of like uh, lukewarm right in their faith, right? Not really active. So again, the message is playing on the context of the city it is written to. The reference to hot and cold, um, warm, lukewarm water actually would have held significant, um, a special significance for the people in Laodicea. Again, Laodicea, so Laodicea is right here. Um, they had a lot to be proud of. They, they were a banking industry. They um, had textiles and they had a medical school. The one thing that they did not have was water. They were, they were famous for having this awful water in their area. All the wells that were, drug in La- that were dug in Laodicea, was, it was bad water. It tasted bad. It, had, um, it, was, it was lukewarm. Um, and that was the way that it's described, not just in, in Revelation, but in other historical accounts of the city. And so again, John, Jesus, is, is playing on the context, the city, what they know. Um, is using images from their own city to describe the state of that, that place. Um, up here in Hierapolis, um, this is why, why um, some people think that the, the water was lukewarm there. In Hierapolis, there was natural warm springs, hot springs specifically. Actually, there were hot springs in Hierapolis, and it was up higher, and those, those hot springs actually drained down, created these calcium deposits, um, on down towards Laodicea. It's actually where some of the medicine for the medical school was pulled from and those calcium deposits. Um, and you can actually see that from Laodicea. Laodicea. Well, wouldn't you know, Colossae, this shouldn't be surprising to us at all at this point, was a place where there was natural cold springs year-round. There was year-round natural springs in Colossae. All right? So you have above you Hierapolis, who has natural hot springs, and you have below you and Colossae, who have, uh, there's natural cold springs, and, and you're in the middle, right? You are physically in the middle of those two things. And so Jesus is using this imagery of being in between those. Now, there's good stuff in hot water, and there's good stuff in cold water. Um, and so, so we shouldn't see, hear this as, oh, the cold is, is, not, is the opposite of Jesus, and, and hot is good, right? Actually, both of these things are good. And what's being said is you're just like the water that comes out in Laodicea. You're hot. The word that is used there, I will spit you out, is actually not a strong enough translation. That word spit is literally vomit. This water is so bad it makes me want to vomit. That's what Jesus is telling them. Um, and so that, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, and I think what's so powerful, the, the, the message to Laodicea is implying that the Christians there were attempting to be both part of the wealth. Remember, they, they are saying that, oh, I have nothing. I don't need anything. I mean, I've got everything I need. I'm rich. I'm prosper. I need nothing. Um, so they're, they're holding on to that part. Um, but then they're also trying to say, but we're Christians. We're following Christ. Um, and so what the message that Jesus is speaking to them seems to be saying is that um, they were trying to be accommodating to the empire the way of the empire, that's really the only way that you get rich in the Roman Empire is if you're accommodating the Roman Empire, if you're living the way the Romans live, if you're doing what, what Rome expects you to do, that's the way that you get wealthy. While um, there's other churches 
they seem to be participating in the Roman culture whenever it seemed to be convenient, right? So we've been looking. Some of these, some of these churches is being described as, you know, you're trying to avoid suffering, and so you're giving a little bit to the empire, and you're causing your uh, faith to be um, to to be shaky, right? Well, here it's almost like it's like they're not just they're not just accepting the parts of the Roman Empire that helped them not get persecuted. They're full blown accepting everything. They're trying to accommodate everything about the Roman Empire into their faith. Um, and so the imagery of lukewarmness, it might make us think that this church is just a few issues. They're just a little lukewarm. They just need to, they just need to, to get it back together, right? They're not hot, quite hot, but they're doing okay. Um, and so that imagery of lukewarmness, it might make us think that they just got a few issues that they need to work out. Um, and then they'll be back to being hot. But that can't be it. Because John doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say anything positive about it. Right? Doesn't say, hey, you're doing pretty good, but, but you got some areas that you need to work on. No, you, there's nothing good going on. Um, the water that you produce, the, the, life, that you're, the life that you're producing is, um, is useless, right? And so um, the imagery of lukewarmness, we cannot think of that as like, oh, they've just got a few issues that they need to work out. But rather, they are either as hot water trying to fully accommodate cold water into their lives or their cold water trying to accommodate hot water into their lives. However you want to use that imagery. Whatever. I guess it's summer right now, so we should say they're cold. They're, they need to be cold, refreshing, right, life-giving, and they're trying to somehow figure out a way to accommodate that hot water into their lives, and it's causing them to be lukewarm. Or you could do it the other way if you want some hot coffee right now, right? If you add cold water to that coffee, it becomes lukewarm, right? And that's not what you want when you're looking for a hot coffee coffee um, and so we can't it's not just a matter of oh they're just somewhere in the middle of the road they're doing some good things and they're doing some bad things this idea of trying to say that you're a Christian while accommodating the empire the culture the society around you you might as well not be a Christian at all that's what Jesus is saying I would rather you just not even do it because you're giving uh, Jesus you're giving uh, Christian faith a bad name there right um, and this is particularly tied to their wealth um, and so, for you say, I'm rich, I am prospered, I need nothing, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. Here's what I wanted to say. Remember what the, the industries were? Banking, textile, medical school. Look again, once again, the imagery. He's saying, what you really need is some real gold. Not, not, not literal gold, but you need some real gold defined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, gold is an imagery used throughout Revelation, right? So obviously not talking about literal gold that you dig which is what they already had enough of. Gold, that has to do with banking industry. What you also need is some white robes to clothe yourself and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Famous for their textile industry, again, clothing um, to cover themselves. And then you also need a salt to anoint your eyes so that you may, be, you may see. There's the medical school imagery, right? So these are three images that would have connected with where they lived really well. Um, gold, the banking industry, the robe, textile industry, and then uh, in the shamefulness of your nakedness, and then the solve to anoint your eyes, to, to bring healing to your eyes, right? So that's what's going on here. Again, a, a popular image here is, is um, I'm standing at the door, knocking. If you'll let me in, I'll come in. And I think that this, this is opposed to Philadelphia, where we're told that they have a door wide open, right? Their door is wide open. Um, and, and Jesus is coming in with them, whereas here it seems that the church in Laodicea has really shut the door on Jesus. They have shut the door on Jesus. 
All right, so I'm running out of time, so I won't, I won't get into that. Um, maybe we'll be able to kind of recap next week and I'll get into some of these things. Um, the point in all these messages really is that there's a different message. There's different messages, but they're all the same message, really. Um, they're, they're deeply connected. Um, I don't want to keep y'all anymore, so what I'll do is, what I'll plan on doing is next week kind of capturing these last few slides and before we move into our next um, lesson. Uh, let's go into prayer and, and be dismissed. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this day. Thank you for um, your word and, and the inspiring uh, images and, and, and messages that were spoken through your, um, your servant, your prophet, your pastor, um, John the Revelator. Would you help us, oh God, to take these and, and consider how we might apply these to our lives now as Christians. Help us, oh God, to be a church that um, is like Philadelphia, Lord, that, that is, is standing firm and, and not accommodating our culture, not accommodating our empire, um, and instead are, are remaining faithful to you, the Lamb. Help us, oh God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.